great to be together with you this morning. Uh, my name is John. I serve as the lead pastor here. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I'd love to meet you after uh, the gathering here this morning. But as we come to uh, this passage of scripture today, I'd like to invite you to bow with me in a word of prayer. Teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees that I may follow it to the end. Give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart towards your statutes and do not towards and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things, preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promises to your servant so that you may be feared. How I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, preserve my life. Lord, we ask that the posture of the psalmist here, who loves and delights in and treasures and cherishes your word, your instruction, your law, we pray that that heart posture would be ours today. We ask that by the powerful working of your spirit that you would cause our hearts to be stirred with love and affection for you and for your instruction for us. Lord, help us, help us today in this passage to understand it rightly and to see Jesus clearly and change us, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, this morning, we get to talk about the Ten Commandments. This is a passage of scripture that is uh, famous, well-known uh, among many people, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not. And uh, one of the things that makes a, a passage like this so famous is something like uh, the movie, uh, The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. I was actually going to watch this uh, this week in preparation for today, um, but then when I saw that it was like four hours long, I was like, oh wait, I don't have time to watch this movie before today. So I'll watch it some other time, but this is uh, one of the things, uh, sort of a cultural way that this is uh, something that's well known in our time. Now we all have different uh, different sort of gut reactions, visceral reactions to the Ten Commandments. Uh, for some people, that's a very positive thing. So maybe you grew up in a Christian home, and you from the youngest age can remember being taught the Ten Commandments. Maybe you can remember uh, sitting in Sunday school class being taught the Ten Commandments. Uh, and it's sort of just the air that you breathe. It's what you've always known to be true. It's, uh, you, just, you don't know life apart from sort of the set of values that's laid out in the Ten Commandments. And maybe you lived in a time or in a place where the, the values that were set out in the Ten Commandments were not only believed by Christian people, but by those who were not even followers of Jesus. And so for you, the Ten Commandments are, are maybe somewhat nostalgic, and you just have a very positive understanding, uh, a positive association with them. Uh, some of us have a less positive association uh, with the Ten Commandments. Uh, for some people, when they hear the Ten Commandments or think about them, uh, maybe they are filled with guilt or shame because they see their lives and they see the kind of life that is laid out in the Ten Commandments and they would think to themselves, or maybe you think, oh, the commandments I have broken. And you see the ways that your life does not match up with what the Ten Commandments instruct us to do and how they instruct us to live, and it fills you with a sense of guilt or shame. And maybe you've grown up in a church tradition that taught that the Ten Commandments are sort of, they're like an impossible standard that you essentially have zero chance of ever keeping. 
In fact, the Ten Commandments are just there to make you realize how bad of a person you are. And just there to make you realize that you need grace. And they're sort of there to, to sort of beat you down to a place of recognizing your need for God's grace. Now, of course, that's not entirely untrue, but it's also not entirely true either. Uh, some of us, uh, maybe you're here today and you are uh, not yet a follower of Jesus, uh, or you certainly have people in your life, in your sphere of influence, whether classmates or coworkers or neighbors or friends or family members who are not followers of Jesus, and maybe uh, the way that they react when they hear the Ten Commandments is, it, it's primitive and it's outdated. I mean, you, you go to a thrift store and you can't find electronics that are less than 10 years old. And that's the way the Ten Commandments can feel. The Ten Commandments just, and what they, what they instruct us simply doesn't match up. It simply just can't keep up with the values of modern society. And so the Ten Commandments are sort of at best, they are primitive and outdated. At worst, they are regressive and they are harmful to the cause of human flourishing and freedom. And so there's a variety of different ways that we could uh, sort of react to the Ten Commandments. And you probably find yourself somewhere along that spectrum here today. Uh, but my goal is, uh, as we think about the Ten Commandments today and next week in particular, uh, my goal is that if you are here and you have a very positive association with them, that you would be deepened in your love and understanding of the Ten Commandments. That your heart would be stirred to love and trust God more fully because of what's in the Ten Commandments. My prayer is also uh, that if you're here today and you have sort of a negative reaction when you think of the Ten Commandments, uh, if it fills you with guilt or shame, or if they feel uh, sort of oppressive to you, that God's Spirit, my prayer is that the Spirit would be at work in you to help you see that the Ten Commandments are a gift. So that's where we're headed. Uh, we're going to uh, look at this passage today. Admittedly, we're not going to take sort of a deep dive into every single one of the commandments, okay? We're not going to have a four-point sermon this week and a six-point sermon next week. Uh, if anything, this is just sort of studying for this has made me realize uh, that we need to do like a whole series just on the Ten Commandments because there's enough in there to sort of warrant that. But what we're going to do today is we're going to uh, just look sort of uh, more broadly and we're going to be thinking about, okay, what are the Ten Commandments? How do the Ten Commandments function? What do they do? That's where we're going to sort of spend our time today. And as we do so, I'd like to invite you to remember three different words. These are the three words you've got to remember that are going to help you sort of filter through what are the Ten Commandments and how do they function. So the first word is recreation. You can go ahead and write that down. Recreation. The second word is reorientation. And the third word is response. And we're going to walk through these here today. So if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and make your way, if you have not already, to Exodus chapter 20, where we're going to begin looking at the text. And as we do, uh, the Ten Commandments do this first. The Ten Commandments, uh, the first word to remember is recreation. Now, I don't mean, uh, this is not to be confused with recreation. I'm talking about recreation. And where, where this word comes from, this is, this is based in the theme that begins in the book of Genesis and ends here in the book of Exodus. So in Genesis chapter 1, there is God who speaks creation into existence. And there are how many days of creation? There are seven days in Genesis, well, if Genesis 2 technically, where, so all you Bible nerds, you got it right. Technically six, but seven days of creation. Uh, within those seven days, there are actually ten acts of creation. There are ten times where the text says God said or God spoke. 
And every time God speaks, something comes into existence. Something is ordered. Something is uh, positioned in a certain way that it wasn't before. So in Genesis chapter 1, we see there's 10 acts of creation. God speaks and the world is created and ordered the way that God has designed it to. Now, can anybody think of the next time in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, between Genesis and Exodus, where a set of events happen, a significant set of events that happen around the number 10? The 10 plagues. So you go to Exodus chapter 7 to 14, and you've got these 10 acts of judgment. And what these are is these are cosmic acts of decreation. They're cosmic acts of uncreation, where you have God turning the water which is a source of life for everybody who lives in the Nile Delta, turning it into blood, which is a source of death. You see the plagues going from the water being turned into blood to the cattle die and the crops die, and eventually culminating in a descent into utter darkness and ending with death, the death of the firstborn. So you see, creation is unraveling in front of the Egyptian people. So in Genesis 1, you have these 10 acts of creation. In Exodus chapter 7 to 14, you have 10 acts of decreation. And do you see where this is going? We come now to Exodus 20, and what we see here are 10 times again God spoke. I don't think this is a coincidence, friends. The, the, the author of the Hebrew Bible is incredibly smart, and these are patterns that are designed, we're meant to pick this up. And so we come here to these 10 acts of recreation here in the book of Exodus with the 10 commandments. And what we see is that the 10 commandments recreate us into the people that we were designed to be. So the 10 commandments have a function of recreation. They recreate us into the people that we were designed to be. Now, the Ten Commandments are not simply designed, they're not just a set of rules that individual people are supposed to follow. Now, of course, as individual people, we are supposed to follow the Ten Commandments, but what the Ten Commandments do is, imagine the the society at large, the people of Israel, they are the ones who collectively are being instructed how to follow the word of the Lord. So they are collectively being recreated into something. As they follow the Ten Commandments, their worship is recreated, is, is redirected towards Yahweh. And they're recreated into a certain kind of community, a worshiping, loving, serving other people community as they obey the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments, they recreate us into the people that we were designed to be. And we see that Israel is being shaped into something of a new humanity as they obey the instruction of the Lord in the Ten Commandments. Now maybe the most counterintuitive thing that I may say today is this. The Ten Commandments are an act of liberation. The Ten Commandments are an act of liberation. When we follow the instruction of the Lord, when we obey his commands as they're set out here, it frees us to live the way that we were designed to live. Now the reason that seems so counterintuitive to us is because we live in a modern Western, individualistic, American society where the individual is the highest authority and our American definition of freedom is nobody owns me. I can choose to believe what I want. I can choose to live the way I want. I can identify as who I want to identify. I can do what I want. There's nobody who's over me, nobody who's an authority over me. And so that's the American definition of freedom that we all sort of have grown up with and and live with. No one is, is authority over me. But the biblical definition of freedom is not the lack of an authority figure. 
In the Bible, what true freedom is, is being enslaved to the right master. That's what true freedom is. And that's exactly what we see in the story of the Exodus. God led his people out of Egypt, and the goal was not just to let them out into Egypt so they could aimlessly wander the desert by themselves. No, what you see is God led his people out from underneath the authority, underneath the tyrannical reign and unjust rule of Pharaoh, and there's a transfer of ownership. And so now God's people are free from one authority, and now they're in relationship with Yahweh in the desert where God gives them the Ten Commandments and places his gracious and loving authority over them. So there's a transfer of ownership from Pharaoh to Yahweh, and this is what true freedom is. Now, every single one of us live mastered by something. Every single one of us lives mastered by someone or some ideology. It's true of every single person, and the question for us is, is that thing that that we are mastered by, will it actually lead to life and human flourishing? Is it good? Is it right? Is it true? And what the Ten Commandments show us and what the Bible teaches us is that it's only when we submit ourselves to the instruction, the, the commands of Yahweh, that we can experience true life and freedom. So the Ten Commandments, the first thing they do is they recreate us into the people we were designed to be. The second word is this, reordering. The Ten Commandments reorder our lives and reorder our worship. Now, the reason the Ten Commandments exist in the first place is because our hearts are not naturally inclined to love Yahweh. Our hearts are not naturally inclined to love and serve the Lord and follow his instruction. Our hearts are not inclined to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. They're simply not. And so the Ten Commandments exist for the purpose of reshaping us into that community that we were designed to be. But they also have a a function of reordering our lives. You see, the, the most basic fundamental human problem is not that we have done bad things, that we've broken the rules. My most basic human problem is not that I stole a candy bar from the grocery store when I was six years old. That's not my most basic human problem. The most fundamental problem that I and every single human being has is that our hearts are far from God. That our our worship is misplaced. Our allegiance is misdirected. The most basic, the the, the essence of the human condition is that our, our worship is fundamentally disordered. So think about this. We were created in God's image to live as co-rulers with him in his good world. We are designed to be wise stewards of the created world. We are designed to take the resources that are around us and to, to arrange them, to cultivate them for the purpose of human flourishing. And as we do so, it's an act of worship to God and an act of loving service to our neighbors. We were designed to live that way with the created world being something of a a, a gift to be stewarded, a means to an end of worship of Yahweh and service of our neighbors. And yet what we see is that sin has turned us inwards. And so now Yahweh is no longer the chief end of our worship. He's no longer the person who has our, our ultimate allegiance. The way we live is we've elevated the created world and we've asked it to be something for us that it was never designed to be. We look to experiences and to pleasures and to money and possessions to provide us with something that they were never designed to give us in the first place. 
We look to other people to provide us with the, the acceptance and the approval and the affirmation and the applause that we were never designed to get at a heart level from other human beings. So you see, we've taken the created world and we've elevated it to the place of being like God. We look to the created world, we look to people and things to provide for us something that only God was designed to provide for us. And so in this way, our worship is fundamentally disordered. It's, it's, it's out of balance, it's out of whack. And what the Ten Commandments do is they reorder our worship. So the Ten Commandments reorder our lives around what is most important. The Ten Commandments reorder our lives around the things that are truly important. And as we sort of just look at a high level at these first four commands here, what we see is these four commands are all centered around putting God back in his rightful place. So commands one and two, if we look at them together. Verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. Verse four, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. So what God is commanding in these first two commandments is complete and total allegiance to him. Now we take this for granted, but in the ancient world, there was no society that did not practice polytheism, which is the belief that there's many different gods, many different spiritual beings, and they sort of, you know, there's one God that oversees this area of life, and there's one God that oversees this area of life, and one God that oversees this area of life, and so I'm going to give sacrifices to this God and to this God and this God for the purpose of getting something from them. Every single culture lived with that sort of mentality, and, and that was the water that they swam in. And here, Yahweh says, there will be no other gods besides me. Your complete and total allegiance is to be to me alone. So you see, it puts God back in his rightful place as the creator, the one who is worthy of our worship. But secondly, what we see here, verse seven, the third command, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. You, you may be familiar with a translation that says, uh, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So the, the taking of God's name in vain, the, the verb that's used there is a word that means to carry or to bear or to represent. So you shall not carry or bear or represent the name of the Lord in vain. Now remember in chapter 19, what Pastor Matt showed us last week is that God had given his people a new identity. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. And part of your responsibility as a, as a priesthood is to represent God to the nations. And this is the same verb that's used in Exodus chapter 28 when it talks about the priestly garments. And it talks about this breastplate that they wear that's got all these different uh, stones or gems on it. And they represent the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes. And the text says that Aaron is going to wear this breastplate and in doing so he will bear the name. He will carry the name of Israel. And what Aaron was doing was he was representing the nation of Israel to God. And so you see the connection of, of we are called to recognize the responsibility of bearing God's name. That, that to bear the name of Yahweh is not a trivial thing to be taken lightly. And so you see it, it affirms the significance of being somebody who bears the name of Yahweh. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, that is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Once again, this puts God back in his rightful place. God says, 
you are not your own provider. You need to stop working for a day and give it to me as a Sabbath given to the Lord. And in doing so, you will have to trust me that I am your provider. You will have to trust me that I am your sustainer. And so you see, again, it puts God back in his rightful place. It dethrones us from playing God, saying, I don't know how I'm going to survive. I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet. There's more work to do. There's more work to do. There's more work to do. There's not enough hours to do it, so I'm going to keep working and keep working and keep working. And in doing so, when we can't stop working, it's an indication that we don't trust God as our provider. We've put ourselves in the place of God, and what this command does is calls the people to remember who they are and remember who God is. He is our sustainer. He is our provider, and so we can take a break. We can take a day off. So all these commands put God back in his rightful place. And in doing so, we see the commandments reorder our lives around what's most important. Lastly, the last word to remember for our time in the Ten Commandments today is this, response. So recreation, the Ten Commandments recreate us into the people that we were designed to be. The Ten Commandments reorder our lives around what is truly important. And what we see here is, is response. The Ten Commandments are a response to who God is and what he's done. This is maybe one of the most significant things that we, that we need to know about the Ten Commandments and about the entire law or instruction of Yahweh in the Old Testament is that the following of God's instructions is a response to what God has already done. So remember, we're in Exodus chapter 20, which means there has been 20 chapters worth of act- 19 chapters worth of activity that has taken place before this moment. And during that time, God has said things like this. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. You've been rescued out of Egypt because of what I did, not because of what you did. I didn't ask you to follow my commands and say, okay, now, if you obey me, if you can follow the rules hard enough and good enough and long enough, then I'll rescue you. No, God rescues them first and then gives them his instructions. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It's important that this is the opening words to the Ten Commandments. As you follow the Ten Commandments, you have to remember who God is and what he has already done for you. So in other words, the Ten Commandments are not, they're not designed to be something that can gain us God's favor. They're not designed to be something of a a thing we do to try and earn God's approval or make him love us more. No, the Ten Commandments are a pathway for responding to who God is and what he's done. God has already delivered his people and now he's entered into covenant relationship with them And a response to the gracious and loving and merciful deliverance of Yahweh is to say, okay, I'll I'll follow your commands. I want to. I just want to make this really clear. This does not mean that obedience is optional. Okay? This does not mean that obedience is optional. Because as we see with the people of Israel, uh, they failed to obey the commandments And what we see is that it is possible for God's people to forfeit the blessing of being in relationship with him. It's possible for people to forfeit the blessings of being in covenant relationship with Yahweh. 
And it's possible for people to bring the judgment of God on them for their willful disobedience. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says something very similar when he says, okay, when, when we sin, God extends his grace to us. He extends his mercy. So should we continue sinning and doing a bunch of disobedient things so that God's grace can just continue to pile up on us? What's his answer? Of course not. If you ask that question, you don't know who God is and you don't understand the good news of the gospel. In the same way, as we look at the Ten Commandments and we say, well, my goodness, if God has already rescued us, then boy, we've lost all incentive to obey him. What that shows is, is, is if that's a thought in our mind that, well, God has already delivered me, so I guess it doesn't really matter how I live. If that's what's in our minds, we don't understand who God is. We don't understand what the Ten Commandments are designed to do. So the Ten Commandments, we have to recognize that they are a pathway for responding to who God is and what he's done. And I think just to kind of take this and summarize this all together this morning is just to say that the Ten Commandments are themselves an act of grace. The Ten Commandments, along with all of the other instruction of Yahweh, is a grace that God gives to his people. Now, I know it doesn't always feel that way, does it? But the Bible affirms over and over and over again that the commandments of God are for our good and they are a grace. The instruction of God is a grace to us in part because it exposes what's inside of our hearts. Right? So there is an element of the Ten Commandments where we see them and it causes us to recognize, okay, if this is God's standard, man, I'm in trouble. I've not kept these commandments. Some of them are commandments of action. Don't do this specific action. Some of them are commandments of heart motivation. Like, don't have any idols. Or don't, uh, don't covet. Covening is a heart posture. It's not a behavior. And so we can all look at the Ten Commandments and say, oh my goodness, I have not lived up to the Ten Commandments. And so it does. It exposes what's inside of our hearts. It shows us the ugliness that exists within inside of us. And at the same time, it also, it, it, it breeds a kind of humility in us. It should. Where we see God's instruction and we see our lives and, and, it, and it humbles us. So it's God's grace to us because it exposes what's in our heart and because it humbles us. But it's also a, an act of God's grace because it shows us the path of life and human flourishing. God doesn't give us his instruction to, to be a drudgery. He doesn't give us his instruction to limit our freedom or to limit our joy or to make our lives miserable. We're not designed to hear the instruction of God and grit our teeth and say, oh, this is so not enjoyable, but I'm going to do it anyways because it's what God wants me to do. That's not how we're supposed to see the Ten Commandments or the instruction of Yahweh. We're supposed to see it and say, God has made himself available to us. God has shown us in the midst of, in the face of our rebellion, in the face of our disobedience, in the face of the ugliness that exists inside of us, God has already delivered us and then shows us the path of life and human flourishing and invites us into relationship with him and shows us how we can live life the way it was designed. That is an act of grace and mercy from God. And so the Ten Commandments are themselves an act of grace. It's not like in the Old Testament, there's all this stuff about law and it's all about rules and it's all about following the rules and it's all about keep the commandments. And then you come to the New Testament and it's like, oh, there's all this grace. Where'd that come from? 
right? It's, it, there is no like super strong separation between the grace of God and the instruction or the law of God. In the Old Testament, the law itself is an act of grace. And, it, and in fact, if it was anything, it's not law and gospel, it's gospel then law. God frees his people first, then gives them his instruction. So any, any sort of way we would think about the Ten Commandments that create this really strong separation between God's grace and God's instruction or his law is not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is that the Ten Commandments, the instruction of God itself, is an act of grace for his people. Now, of course, if we, if we continue this, if we continue to read the story of Scripture, we end up at the New Testament, where we see the clearest, most supreme act of God's grace and his compassion and his mercy on his people, and that is the sending of his son. God sent his son, who says in the Sermon on the Mount, which, not surprisingly, Jesus goes up on the side of a mountain and speaks the words to the people. See the connection? Jesus being the new Moses, giving the new, new Torah, new instructions of God to the people. And he says to them, don't think I've come to abolish the law. Nothing wrong with the law. I haven't come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to complete it. Meaning that every single thing that the law intended for us, everything the law pointed forward to, everything the law was supposed to do inside of us, Jesus perfectly embodies and fulfills everything the law anticipated and pointed forward to. Jesus loved his neighbor as himself. Jesus fully delighted in the commands, the instruction of Yahweh, and was obedient to the Father in every single case. In all the ways where we have failed, Jesus did not fail. And in the same way that in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is the representative of humanity in a way, Jesus, as the representative of Israel, lived that life on our behalf that we could not live. And he died the death that we should have died, having lived a life of perfect obedience on our behalf. And what we see in the cross of Jesus and in the life of Jesus is that we are rebellious creatures. We are idolatrous creatures who do not and cannot live up to the expectations. There, there's a war going on within, inside of each one of us. Even if our hearts have been made alive in Jesus, there's still an ongoing war between our earthly nature and what is true about us in Jesus. And there's that constant war that's going on. And even, even with a heart that's been changed by God, we cannot perfectly obey his instruction the way we were designed to. But God has made provision. In the Old Testament, there, there's the book of Leviticus, which most people skip over in their uh, yearly Bible reading plan. Uh, I won't ask for a show of hands for how many people have done that. But uh, you get to Leviticus and you sort of tap out. If you, if you made it through Exodus... You ain't making it through Leviticus, typically. In Leviticus, there's all this weird stuff about the sacrificial system and about killing animals and killing goats and sprinkling the blood and all this sort of weird stuff. That's a part of the law. That's a part of the instruction of Yahweh. So you see, God gives us the Ten Commandments, says, here's how you're supposed to live, and then within the law itself, he makes provision for when you fail to keep the law. When you disobey, here's what you can do so that your relationship with me is made right again. 
So the law itself is an act of God's grace and his provision for us. And in the same way, God has made provision ultimately for us in the person of Jesus. That is the truest act of provision. If you follow all the parallels, all the themes of of the sacrificial lamb and and the blood, all that comes into the New Testament when you get to the person of Jesus. And so we see Jesus is the one who perfectly embodied, perfectly fulfilled the law on our behalf when we could not do it. And he is the the supreme act of God's grace and of God's mercy and of God's compassion to us. And so as we think about the Ten Commandments, we should not be living under, we should not feel a weight of condemnation. Sure, we may feel conviction. We should feel conviction over the ways that we have failed to live as God has designed us to live. But if we feel a, a, a weight of shame and guilt then it it just shows that our hearts don't fully understand the message of the gospel. God has made provision for us, and and we should approach the Ten Commandments with hope. Because yes, we are rebellious creatures, and at the same time, God has accommodated his people. God has met his people where they are, has given them his instruction, and has shown us the path to life and flourishing. And so that's good news for us today, is it not? As we come to the communion table today, we get to celebrate. We get to celebrate and be reminded of the fact that Jesus, who is the embodiment, he he is the, the, the one that embodied everything the law was supposed to be, he embodied that for us. And it's his life and his death on our behalf that makes it possible for us to experience a relationship with God and enables us to experience something of life the way it was designed here and now. And so we get to celebrate that in Jesus there is hope for us, even though we've been disobedient, even though we've been rebellious like the people of Israel were, there's hope for us. And so we celebrate that today at the table. I'd like to invite you to take a moment of silent confession and reflection. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and in word and in deed by the things that we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength and that we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, we confess the ways that our hearts have been captivated by earthly possessions, by things. Lord, we confess the ways that we have placed our hope and our allegiance and found comfort and safety and security and identity in things that were never designed to give us that in the first place. Lord, we confess the ways that we have 
not loved you with our whole heart. We confess the ways that we have lived in disobedience to your commands, the way that we have not loved them or cherished them as good, as beautiful. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. In your mercy, we pray that you would forgive what we have been, that you would help us amend what we are, and that you would direct what we shall be. Also, that we can delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.